0: Welcome to the Safe and Sound Protocol Podcast, a polyvagal theory informed therapy. I'm your host, Joanne McIntyre. Here we talk everything polyvagal and SSP related. Dr. Porges has provided us with a revolutionary framework for understanding the connection between our autonomic nervous system and behavior. The SSP Acoustic Intervention is an exciting new therapy helping people all around the world. Hi and welcome to episode number 16. I'm Joanne McIntyre, your host, and today it is my pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Porges again. We spoke back in episode number five, where we focused on the background information in developing the Safe and Sound Protocol. In today's episode, we discuss cardiac vagal tone and heart rate variability. Dr. Porges will discuss what heart rate variability is and why it is important. But to get everyone started with a basic understanding, heart rate variability is the measurement of the time interval between each heartbeat and is considered gold standard in measuring stress in the nervous system. But before we get started, I'd like to formally introduce Dr. Porges. He's a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University where he is the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium. He is Professor of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and Professor Emeritus at both the University of Illinois at Chicago and the University of Maryland. He serves as President of the Society for the Psychophysiological Research and the Federation of Associations in Behavioural and Brain Sciences and is a former recipient of a National Institute of Mental Health Research Scientist Development Award. He has published more than 300 peer-reviewed scientific papers across several disciplines that have been cited in more than 30,000 peer-reviewed papers. He holds several patents involved in monitoring and regulating autonomic state. He is the originator of the polyvagal theory theory that emphasises the importance of physiological state in the expression of behavioural, mental and health problems related to traumatic experiences. He is the author of The Polyvagal Theory, Neurophysiological Foundations of Emotions, Attachment, Communication and Self-Regulation, The Pocket Guide to the Polyvagal Theory, The Transformative Power of Feeling Safe and the co-editor of Clinical Applications of the Polyvagal Theory, The Emergence of the Polyvagal Informed Therapies. All these books are available through Norton. Dr. Porges is the creator of the Safe and Sound Protocol, which is what our podcast is about, the acoustic intervention, which is currently used by more than 2,000 practitioners around the world to improve spontaneous social engagement, reduce hearing sensitivities, and to improve language processing, state regulation, and spontaneous social engagement. So welcome, Dr. Porges. Again, thank you for um, coming and being so gracious with your time to share your knowledge on the Safe and Sound Protocol podcast. And um, as I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to be talking about heart rate vari- variability today. Today, And um, so I thought maybe we'd start with if you can talk about some of your early research and how you stumbled, or not actually stumbled, how you developed that. Stumbled. Stumbled, okay. You can Um, use that. Into developing this this awareness, this knowledge base.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's an interesting story, but it all comes down to how good an observer are you and what questions do you ask when you observe uh, different patterns, physiological patterns. Uh, For me, heart rate variability goes back to, the uh, middle 1960s, when I was in graduate school. Now let's, let's move to uh, 1967, actually, when I was working on my master's thesis. And we were putting electrodes on, measuring heart rate, measuring uh, electrical activity or sweat gland activity off the hands. It was a new discipline. Discipline was called psychophysiology. It was very new, and it was kind of exciting because the idea was you can see the person responding without asking them a question just looking at their body so it was this curiosity of what's below the surface of behavior and and actually speech and i just found it just a remarkable and interesting uh, area so i started to do my master's thesis of very basic research looking at heart rate reactions and breathing reactions and electrodermal reactions during reaction time and various forms of sustained attention tasks, including introceptor one, attending to one's own heart rate. And we started to notice certain things. We noticed that when people were in a state of sustained attention, heart rates uh, start to stabilize, being the beat-to-beat variability kind of flattened out. And we stopped the research because we didn't, we weren't measuring respiration. And we wondered whether or not the effects we were seeing were merely a function of the person not breathing or inhibiting breathing. So like I'm leaning forward, do I breathe more shallowly? It helps me attend, but is the impact on the beat to beat heart rate, the reduction of that variability, basically an epiphenomenon because of my breathing. So we ran the study, we got, uh, stopped it, got the device to measure breathing and started the study all over again. And now we were looking at these B2B changes. And we found out that the B2B changes in the heart rate variability during sustained attention uh, wasn't being driven solely by breathing. Breathing was in a sense non-discriminatory. It was more of a generalized response. But if you gave people different attention loads or mental effort loads, the heart rate variability seemed to separate that out nicely. And so this was, was published in 1969 in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. And it was probably the first paper that quantified heart rate variability. But it did something else within, I would say, I also started asking the question at that point in time, what were the individual differences if people had more heart rate variability? Were they the ones who, by nature of their own physiology, were better attenders, faster responders and made more reliable heart rate responses. Now, I've got to give you a little history here because the history at that point in time was heart rate variability didn't exist. It was a, a product of not controlling your subjects. People were, in a sense, very behaviorally oriented in their thinking and not very neurally oriented. So I remember getting criticized when I was describing heart rate variability and one established... Uh, uh, scientists uh, dominant, in fact, in the area says Steve. The reason you have heart rate variability is you're just not a good scientist. And it was this belief that the heart was just there doing nothing except responding to stimuli. It was a very naive uh, viewpoint. And uh, the dominant measures of heart rate were: did the heart rate go up? Or did it go down? It was directionality and in anticipation of stimulation. Heart rate often dropped. You actually had conditioned reactions that were temporally mediated. So the, the, the bottom line here was that people were not, uh, they were measuring physiology, but they weren't had no interest or any knowledge regarding the neural mechanisms that were creating these physiological changes. And that was the kind of the space I fell into. And that became my journey, was not merely to describe this phenomenon, but to try to understand the underlying neural mechanism. And then, uh, from my dissertation, which was completed also decades ago in 1970, and that paper was published in 1972, established that the individual differences in heart rate variability were related to whether or not people had faster reaction times, better attenders, and that was probably the first introduction into the literature that heart rate variability was a positive attribute, and actually research moved on from there. But following 1972, my research started to go into asking the questions, what was the underlying mechanism? And that's where this whole interest in vagal phenomenon occurred. And if you track the literature, no one mentioned the vagus in psychophysiology. The dominant view was sympathetic nervous system. People talked about arousal. They didn't talk about homeostatic function and vagal regulation. It just wasn't in the literature. So that's where it started. And the mechanisms then, the question was variability is just a a simple statistical description of the beat-to-beat variance. It doesn't tell you anything about patterning. But when you look at the data, you start seeing that there are these rhythmic oscillations in heart rate, which are called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And that was really, my journey was to kind of map into that literature, understand what that was doing, do uh, studies with animals, do studies with preterm babies, look at the developmental attributes of it, look at the effects of blockade and electrical stimulation on it to create a validation that it was possible now through a simply, easily measured peripheral autonomic measure to get an insight into the brain's regulation of our homeostatic function. So I never viewed heart rate variability or uh, what I was calling cardiac vagal tone that, I never viewed it as simply, quote, an autonomic measure. I viewed it as a neural measure of how the brain was controlling your viscera. I was viewing it as a window to the brain
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm and um in and I think when I was preparing for this I was reading one of your earlier papers the cardiac vagal tone the physiological index of stress and I think you know in the general sort of knowledge base when people are learning about HRV people kind of think that they're measuring a stress response so I'm looking at a stress response but in this paper you very sort of clearly sort of provide the framework to sort of show that to discuss homeostasis. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm gonna let you unpack this, but it definitely brings you awareness where what we're measuring is is homeostasis in the nervous system.
1: Right. And if you you know move forward 50 years or so, I I'm still at that same point. I think we've misunderstood our uh, our our the nervous system of the human and mammalian autonomic nervous system, and we use terms like stress, which are, in a sense, uh, distal constructs, and then we look for measures without understanding the, the physiological consequence. So uh, this frequently use of cortisol as a measure of stress is really, I would say, outrageous you know, from a neurophysiological level and from, in a sense, a health or medical level. Cortisol has certain functions, adaptive functions, and if we understood those better, we wouldn't call it stress. We would call it a neurochemical support, an endocrine support for mobilization. And if we accept it as an index of stress, then all movement is stress. And that led the stress physiologist and psychophysiologists into a quandary. And then they had to talk about good stress and bad stress. Now. What I now say is, isn't it much easier to think about disruption of homeostatic function? And when you look at even the physiology of what that vagal index is, it's the oscillations of heart rate uh, through the vagus, which are functionally being turned on and off with our respiratory cycle. And that's within the brainstem. The respiration is, in a sense, a gating mechanism that is in the brainstem area. And what we can see is that when people have lower amplitude respiratory sinus rhythm or less cardiac vagal tone, they have all kinds of other comorbidities. The autonomic nervous system is dysregulated. And what we're, what I've developed now, and we're testing it in several studies, is a new metric which I call vagal efficiency. And so it's not merely that you have higher amplitude oscillations. It's whether changes in those amplitude of those oscillations are effectively changing heart rate. So if you have a, a vagally efficient system, if I want to get up, I change that vagal brake, I change the amplitude of those oscillations, and now my heart rate beats faster, and I have more energy. I move. I don't need my synthetics to come on board. And when I sit down, it comes right back on board, and I have resilience and I'm self-regulated. Now what we're showing this is a really nifty research because people with trauma histories, that vagal efficiency is less. It's as if their feedback loops of homeostasis have already been challenged. And this is probably, this is occurring long before there's end organ damage. So you're seeing in a sense disruption of homeostasis before you're seeing in a sense the end organs. And this is another important question that the medical profession internists look at end organs. They don't talk about the neural regulation of those end organs. Even when you get a stress test, they're looking to see if they can disrupt the electrical conductivity on the myocardium. They're not looking at vagal regulation and whether it comes back quickly or how it comes back. Likewise, they're not looking at any other organs as having uh, a neural surveillance system that's regulating the brain cell. And that's functionally what our vagus is. It's primarily a surveillance system that is measuring the status of those organs and then sending cues back what to do. So back to your point, I think it's so parsimonious to redefine stress as disruptions in homeostasis, because now it has a function Uh, and it becomes in an energy uh, conservation model. The disruption of homeostasis is shifting energy from serving the organs to serving the organism, survival. It's it's a Star Trek with the defense shields coming up. I got to fight off the enemy. I can't take care of the internal organs. And that's what disruption of homeostasis is. It's shifting priorities of the nervous system for the short term. That's why as a resilient nervous system can turn the homeostasis or disrupt it for short periods of time. And recovery is just what We call that play. You know, we exercise then we recover. But if the system is already challenged, you don't have in your repertoire the ability to play.
0: Mm-hmm. So can I ask in terms of just for my curiosity, so with the vagal efficiency, so when you're looking at your output, and I'm sure you've, you can explain what you build in in terms of the algorithms to help measure, do you is it like a is it you're looking at time in terms of how long it takes for the reading to go back to baseline or I mean what is can you talk uh, the, a bit
1: the, about the the metaphor is really quite simple if you were to measure over short periods of time the amplitude of respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which was observed in the early 1900s as an index the, of the inhibitory cardioinhibitory action of the vagus. So it was known in 1910 that this was a vagal indicator, but the quantification of it as an index of the vagal activity was really, that was in my, that was still un, undeveloped when I landed in, 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 into that area. And so we developed methodologies that are really state-of-the-art in extracting that amplitude of that vagal component of heart rate variability because heart rate variability has other things in it. It has uh, slower oscillations due to vascular activity, due to baroreceptors, and most likely even due to the dorsal vagus. But the respiratory one is solely ventral vagus. It's unique. So so the question is, uh, what does the algorithm do? It really asks this question. How much bang for the buck do you get for this amount of vagal tone for you? So it's looking at a regression line, the slope of that regression line of sampled measures of respiratory sinus arrhythmia and heart rate over time. And to challenge the system, the protocols we developed have really simple posture shifts, supine, sit and then stand. No cognitive load, just simple underlying neurophysiological challenges and that is really telling a lot it's creating a, a, a model we also did another study with people on a sedentary uh bike and so they're seated on the bike then they bike and and then when they stop biking we watch the recovery and in a person who has a efficient vagal efficiency index or strong, they get a lot of bang for the buck. So if you pull back the vagus, they get a lot of heart rate out of it. And when the vagus comes back on, the heart rate slows down. So when you look at their curves, even the exercise people uh, task, you see this co-variation between the amplitude of RSA and heart rate. And in people with poor uh, vagal efficiency, you see a disconnect. And part of that is sympathetics are coming on board. And part is the feedback loops are just weak. And I think the weakening of those homeostatic feedback loops serve a function as uh, if people are in chronic abuse or suffer, survive serious traumas, I think being numb has an adaptive feature. They're not feeling their body, their Mm -hmm. body's pain. And I think this is part of that adaptive response But it also leads to all those comorbidities that we're all familiar with, gut problems, cardiovascular problems that co-occur with trauma histories.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so true. So I just want to backtrack just a little bit just to make just a little bit more sort of explicit the connection um, from vagal input on on the heart because I know sometimes this part gets sort of confusing for some people, that we know that there is an intrinsic rhythm in the heart Mm. through your SA node, which maintains a constant beat and vagal influences on the SA node will slow heart rate down. But we're talking about this underlying rhythm that comes through ventral vagal input on that SA Mm. node that has a rhythm an internal rhythm of its own fruit mm-hmm. um, from the, the brainstem. So I wonder if you could just yeah. make that connection uh, a little clearer, yeah. I, cause so, I know it's what so, we're measuring in RSA, but you know, just at that brainstem level, just sort of make that. Yeah, so
1: we'll go back to the intrinsic rate of the heart. So most people's intrinsic rate is really between 90 and 110 beats per minute but few people have a resting heart rate at that level because the vagus is acting like an active break on the heart, but it doesn't keep it down, locked down. It actually has an oscillatory feature to it and it's called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And so the most potent attribute or aspect of vagal inhibition on the heart is during exhalation. And if you think about calming mechanisms like Uh, yoga or meditation, it's all been about slow exhalations, abdominal breathing, and the afferents from abdominal breathing are actually amplifiers of that vagal efferent action on the heart. So, so much of what we already intuitively know, we know that if we calm the body down, where our heart rates go slower. And we know that if we breathe slowly, meaning really that we exhale slowly, then our bodies calmed down and that is returning or putting the vagal brake on. And a lot of people don't think about the mechanisms. They think about the behaviors. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so with that sort of vagal influence, and we know that there's a connection to respiratory um, to our respirations, you know, how with you know, because I know in the field of heart rate variability by feedback, you know, we have discussions around RSA, but then we also have discussions around respiratory heart rate interactions where people actually actively use breath work to help tap into that rhythm of when you breathe in, your heart rate increases slightly, and then when you breathe out, your heart rate slows down. Um, so, what if you could sort of discuss that sort of connection to... Wow. Well,
1: with a lot of heart rate biofeedback, they push the breathing to even a slow frequency where they're breathing now six times a minute and not 10 times a minute. And uh, it, that's, that actually recruits other rhythms in the body, including vascular feedback loops. And that amplifies the impact of that slower respiratory action on the simulatrial node. And so this has to do with what they call resonance breathing, coherence breathing, or uh, uh, Eastern uh, uh, breath, whether it's from, from, from India or, or Japan or China, it's all, it's all very much the same, slow exhalations. But there are other things that link into this that is like chanting and singing because those are slower exhalations. And even if we extend the duration of our phrases before we take a breath, those are vaguely soothing, they'll calm us down. And if you see anyone who's anxious, they will often take a breath after a word or two. and They are conveying their anxiety in in the uh, staccato aspects of their vocalizations. Uh, But biofeedback, uh, heart rate variability or RSA biofeedback, is monopolizing on the actual uh, neurophysiology of that vagal action. And the history of biofeedback is an interesting history as well, because it started off with a belief that you could control physiological, uh, visceral organs, heart rate, blood pressure, uh, without a, through conscious awareness, without motor intervention, or, uh, or motor interaction. So the earlier work was done under curarized, paralyzed organisms, because that had to do with the theory underneath it, not the practicality. And when the theory kind of fell apart, meaning that the replications in the uh, uh, paralyzed organisms couldn't weren't made, then bio, uh, then it became biofeedback became a practical intervention that had effect. And the concern about the underlying theoretical link became less relevant. So the idea was, if you learn to breathe a certain way, if you do this, your heart rate slows up, blood pressure goes down, this is good. So we don't argue that point at all. And in the beginning it was, what are the mechanisms that you're using? And I think now within uh, the biofeedback community, there's, I would say, a more, it's coming closer to what uh, would be would have been talked about as Eastern viewpoints uh, of meditation and breath. I think there's a commonality between the practice of biofeedback and also some of the forms of meditation and breathing, Yoga breathing.
0: Mm-hmm. 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 And so with that in mind, if people utilize those practices where well, you tap mm-hmm. in a new practice. So for somebody who has an underlying, um, not a strong RSA mm-hmm. in terms of how they can maintain homeostatic, um, you know, functions in their body. So people who, who use those elements, which are considered like portals in to mm-hmm. help improve vagal tone. I mean, do you over time see RSA, underlying rsa improve like the baseline
1: there's a that's an extremely good question um the issue is what's the plasticity in a system you can show that short-term manipulations different types i actually did a study in the 80s using rolfing methods um when and we did two studies one was just pelvic tilting, tilting the pelvis up, increased the vagal regulation on the heart. But you put the pelvis back down, it then goes back to where it was. Then we did a study where deep abdominal massage was being offered. That raised it immediately after it stayed up for a while. I don't know how many days later we checked it, but it was still up there. So the point is there is this concept of retuning and so if we kind of like slip into the SSP world for a moment, mm-hmm. the underlying theory behind that is you can retune your autonomic nervous system through giving cues to the brainstem. And the issues are that retuning as opposed to increasing tone. A lot of people get locked into this metaphor of you make things stronger by challenging it. Polyvagal theory says, really there are different states we can be in. And in different states, our nervous system is going to try to uh, optimize certain survival strategies. If we're safe and calm, we don't have to use our defenses. And now our body can, can support homeostasis, we can be social, we can trust people, and we can be, is as metabolically very efficient. But if we're under challenges, our body shifts state. And RSA or heart rate variability under the challenge states goes down because they're reflecting heart rate variability and in its uh, refined form of looking at respiratory sinus arrhythmia. I'm saying refined form only because it's providing a neural window, understanding of the neural phenomenon. Heart rate variability is is sense, undifferentiated variance of the heartbeat in general. It reflects good stuff, but doesn't mean that. If you have arrhythmias, you'll have high heart rate variability and that's not necessarily, well, it's not good. Uh, So we have to qualify. We have to know what we're looking for, what we want to optimize. And what we're saying is uh, if we optimize the impact of the respiratory rhythm on heart rate, this is good because this is supporting homeostasis. Now, the question is, how do we optimize it? Mm-hmm. And you know, so this is this whole area of RSA biofeedback. And a lot of it, of course, is always going to be around uh, the context of safety. And of course, the other major component is slowing the breathing up. And the slowing of the breathing is an interesting uh, strategy that is historically built into traditions for hundreds of years, and that is slower meditative breaths that may, uh, in a sense, recruit uh, multiple sources uh, for shorter, short periods of time. So when you breathe slowly, let's say six or even slow six times or slow per minute, doesn't mean you're going to breathe that way after you go through your practice. But your heart rate could get retuned from that. The vagal break can be retuned so the experience of allowing our nervous system to express itself in safety uh, enables a great expansiveness of the resilience of the autonomic nervous system
0: mm-hmm. say. so i was hoping now just to maybe clear up some definitions because i know when people are starting their learning journey in this arena and they're doing some of the reading of your literature or they listen to you um, give presentations, mm. there's quite a few new terms that people will will come across. And I know you've mentioned vagal break um, mm. a few times today mm. already. So I'm just wondering if you could just, just sure. clearly <clears> throat> throat> <now>.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> I know you've alluded to it a little bit, but let's just-
1: Well, <clears throat> When I, uh, it's actually a word, uh, a concept, construct that I first introduced is 1996. And I was actually studying children. And uh, contrary to the belief that if you had lower vagal tone, it was bad. What we were finding is that if children reduced their vagal tone during an intention task, they were the most social kids. So we, if they were doing this, and then we tested them, uh, uh, let's say, months later. They were the more children who were more socialized. And what that was really talking about was their ability to regulate their physiological state. And so the vagal break is really how we can modulate um, the inhibition of our heart in both directions, meaning that we can uh, either slow our heart rate up calm down, or we can uh, reduce or pull back the vagal activity. So the vagal break is, in general, we're talking about removing it to move. So we're getting energy by pulling it back. Um, it's an, The notion of the vagal efficiency metric is really asking, okay, we have this vagal break. How effective is it? How How powerful is it? And also, how effective is it? So you know you could say, "Well, I have high amplitude respiratory sinus arrhythmia. I'm king of the mountain." Well, maybe not so true. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it just looks like you have all this uh, neural influence, but your nervous system can't use it to regulate your body. And that's what the vagal efficiency says. It says what the optimal situation is to have good vagal influence on that sinoatrial node and also to have the flexibility of pulling it off and putting it back on to support your body's needs. And the simplest task we use was posture shifts, which have no cognitive, no intentionality. It just triggers because if you move from a supine to a seated to a standing, heart rate will get progressively higher because there are blood pressure receptors in your neck that are saying, be careful. You're losing blood, is falling out of your head literally. You have to keep the oxygenated blood up to your head. So the body has to adjust and uses uh, heart rate to push the blood up because that will give you higher blood pressure. We want blood, again, misunderstandings, like since we were afraid of blood pressure, we really should be afraid of low blood pressure because that's where lethargy, depression, uh, a true sense of depression, uh, basically a, a, a feeling that uh, intending doom. We like a degree of blood pressure because it helps us feel exuberant and enthusiastic and energetic. We like a lot of our sympathetic nervous system. It's not our enemy, but it needs to be choreographed or constrained uh, by our ventral vagal circuit.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think when you use the word flexibility, I think is, you know, was what resonates a lot with practitioners, is that often that we see people with trauma or
1: Mm.
0: individuals on the spectrum, and it's that lack of flexibility in that underlying physiology, and if you want to look at vagal break, you know, the, the flexibility, the vagal break to... To withdraw or re-engage, and how efficient that is, which enables the overflow into into increased behavioral repertoire.
1: Yeah, well, it, it, a quick notice of the pe- populations you're talking about. The quick take home is that their bodies are usually in states of threat, so mm-hmm. they're in defensive states, and it's not a choice. Then we often want to say, "What are you scared about? You should be like, you know." If if words would heal, there'd be no depression, uh, trauma would be just a discussion and you say, oh, now I understand everything's fine. But the body incorporates, gets retuned. And the words, those narratives actually get distorted by the body state. So the narrative is always trying to justify the physiological state you're in. If you're in this very ventral vagal, comfortable, safe state, You have tremendous flexibility in your personal narrative. But if you're dealing with clients that have severe trauma histories, they don't have that flexibility. They're at the edge of threat. And so the issue is how do you convince as as a consumer, as the owner of the nervous system, how do you convince the nervous system that it's safe to be resilient, that it's safe to take chances? And the only way that I see it is actually going back to our evolutionary roots, in which cues of safety are really cues of co regulation from others, intonation of voice, gesture, uh, safe places. And that's actually where SSP came from. It was, I viewed it as a stealth intervention that didn't require any type of explanation. The body knew what it meant, it meant that it was cues of safety. and of safety calm our autonomic nervous system. And of course, the counter indications with people with severe trauma is uh, going into a calm autonomic nervous system is a great risk to them because they're giving up their defenses. And so this was really the insights that many practitioners learned was how to titrate and how to allow people to move into that. But to me, it was really this very interesting a journey, I would say, to observe interesting journeys that when you have someone with a trauma history, the naive human, I would say I was the naive one, not not the person who survived, I was a naive one. So, couldn't we just give them distilled uh, cues of safety like, like a mother's lullaby? <clears throat> and if we think about SSP, it's an amplification of the intonation, prosodic intonation, of cues of safety. I view it as distilled essence of safety. So wouldn't it be wonderful to give a person who is like this, distilled cues of safety? Forgot one thing, a very important thing is that safety, uh, defense was their protector and their body now when they would listen to this would go like this for a moment. And then that accessibility through their Higher brain structures was now interpreted as vulnerability. And then you get this destabilization because they're they're getting the hell out of there because they're now vulnerable when um, a person without that history is saying, oh, wow, I feel really, really relaxed. And you're getting these two diametrically different reactions, but they're based upon the history of how that nervous system experienced the world in one Accessibility is good, and the other one, accessibility equals danger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this becomes how really trauma-informed uh, SSP providers are working with people. It's really an interesting journey as they uh, basically empower the client to say, I'm destabilizing the client, style learning about how cues affect their body and talking about, in a sense, understanding it and knowing when to stop. So you basically experience it until your nervous system understands that those cues are really not dangerous. And I use terms like faulty neuroception, which is another buzzword. It's like saying my nervous system is tuned to be defensive and now I'll get cues of safety, but I'll have a faulty neuroceptive response. And I can understand why, because of safety make me accessible, but maybe I'm not ready to be accessible. Mm-hmm.
0: So I think this just segues beautifully into, you know, how how what are your ideas for practitioners for connecting um, knowledge base around RSA? And I know we have some tools, yeah. and that we'll we'll get to. But what what are your ideas of how <clears throat> the, we can blend well, both together?
1: Well, it, it's a different. Uh, I would say qualitatively, it's a different biofeedback model, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> it's like the journey, uh, it, I see the journey of being a human is learning about our body. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, if you're any type of therapist or provider in the mental health space, it's a psychoeducational space. It's not, and I think medicine has made major mistakes in the treatment of its of patients. By not utilizing the power of psychoeducation, which means familiarity, expectancy, safety. Uh, Medicine has leveraged uncertainty and guilt, you know, meaning that you better uh, uh, take your medicine or do your your exercises. But what we learn is that expectancy is powerful in the nervous system because a violation of expectancy is threat. So we have to leverage everything about predictability. Predictability is not boredom. It's meaning that I'm not gonna get hurt. And one of the things that you see with children who are on spectrum when they do SSP is that they start gravitating to novelty. Novelty in food, novelty in social settings. They are directing it because the nervous system is now safe enough to incorporate new information.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we know we can use some different tools um, like the um, IOM2 or or, um, heart math or um, thought technology. There's quite a few other tools that we can use to help, you know, use Mm -hmm. sensors to measure um, RSA. And um, I guess I was just sort of curious about, um, I know you're involved with the IOM2. Yeah. Um, If you can speak to that, and then we can sort of talk about how we can sort of couple that with helping clinicians help build that bridge to help practitioners or their clients develop that sort of interoceptive awareness, and how we can use what
1: what I think will happen is that uh, again, this goes into the psychoeducational portal where you're teaching uh, your clients about their body's responses. So they are seeing that the body has makes decisions that they may not be aware of, physiological responses. So, okay, so let's go to the SSP IOM2 connection. Mm-hmm. The SSP, basically when it's doing its job, meaning when it's not triggering safety in those who are uh, interpreting their bodies, interpreting the safety as vulnerability, the body becomes calmer and the autonomic nervous system becomes more vaguely organized, meaning RSA will increase. Uh, and hypersensitivities are decreased, auditory processing improves, uh, Hyposensitivity, human voice decreases because now we pull in human voice better. And hypersensitivity, especially to lower frequency sounds, decreases. So we can see the nervous system shifting from being tuned to being in a state of defense to being tuned now to be socially or co regulated with others. And this, the parallel of that system is the ventral vagus, because the ventral vagus is the. The brainstem area, and I call that area, it's not just my term, but it is a term, called the ventral vagal complex, because the area of the brainstem that regulates the vagal break, that vagal efferent action of the heart, also regulates vagal fibers that regulate larynx and pharynx, meaning our intonation of our voices. So you would hear it in the voice of people being more more intonation. But the other part is that that area of the brainstem is affected and affects the other cranial nerves that include muscles, the nerves that regulate muscles of the face and muscles of the middle ear. So we start seeing faces that look more alive, more exuberant and more better neural regulation of the middle ear muscles, which enable the individual to deal with loud sounds and background noises and which is coming through the uh, facial nerve and part of it to the trigeminal. But what's interesting is if you had Bell's palsy, which is paralysis of the facial nerve, one of the symptoms, and it's only hemi-paralysis, but one of the symptoms is hyperacusis. Mm-hmm. So you can see the real life experiments of the impact of that facial nerve uh, dysfunction affecting hypersensitivities. And one of the things that SSP is most reliably effective in is actually reducing auditory hypersensitivities. And so it's both calming and changing that whole ventral vagal complex to support more homeostatic, more safe, more spontaneously engaging. It was conceptualized as a neural exercise. Mm -hmm. Biofeedback is a neural exercise as well. Uh, listening as uh, less, uh, I would say the intentionality is easier to just listen than to do a biofeedback, but it's not saying biofeedback is hard or wrong to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when the IOM2 uh, is uh, remarketed to SSP providers, I think will give providers a relatively inexpensive objective measurement of that physiological substrate that they have inferred and was changing. We're putting the vagally efficiency metric onto the dashboard as well. Mm-hmm. And the whole goal of the re-engineering of it was to create a tool that was very, very relatively inexpensive that people could use for research and the data would be publishable, a publishable quality. So these were the criteria I was putting on this device as I was working with them to re-engineer it. And we hope to have uh, interesting package there soon. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. I know in some of the clients um, who I've supported with um, through the SSP, some more of my adults with other chronic fatigue, autoimmune um, conditions I've supported using the ION2 and using their resonance score. Yeah. Uh, so doing baseline to see what mm. is their baseline and then having them do mm-hmm. an um, ION2 um, task or journey okay. after or getting another baseline after they've done the SSP. And it's been a nice tool yeah. to help supplement um, but also provide that window when I see a resonance score mm. um start to drop compared to where it was, then we can have a discussion about what are they noticing. Um, yeah. So um, I found it a nice tool to help supplement, but I um, if you could just speak a little bit about what that resonance score is at current and what the vision is for that to change. Well,
1: the resonance score is really, really um, based on uh, having the person breathe. At the frequency they're saying they're breathing. And it's actually derived from the heart rate pattern. So the, the breathing pattern is extracted from the heart rate pattern because the frequency of respiratory science arrhythmia is respiration rate. So if you push that down, you are pushing that oscillation. And I was actually working with them on algorithms to make it a more reliable one. So it's pushing, uh, first of all, let me say that. What you're doing is the right thing, and so uh, uh, putting the two different types of tasks together, and the part that I think is important to, it's intu- implicit in what you were saying, but I'll make it explicit, mm-hmm. is to have the person talk about their experience, mm-hmm. and with SSP and with the I am with the journey. You know how are they feeling? What's their body doing? What's the awareness of it? Share your experience. Uh, likewise with SSP. What are the, what are the thoughts or memories or feelings that become awakened? I've had individuals say to me, you know, the first couple of days I'm like this, but on day three I find it a little bit rough, yeah. and uh, you know, and uh, you know, so it's kind of interesting where people are based upon their own history. And of course, as the more you become familiar with these tools like SSP, it becomes very predictable that you know a certain you know, disruption earlier in life or an illness will be manifested uh, as a person's body tries to, it says, experience, is it safe enough to come out?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I know this is totally backtracking and it just kind of popped into my mind. Um, so getting back to a little bit what we're talking before about um, about RSA and that adaptability or efficiency in the vagal brake system. So what would, what would you, just to help practitioners sort of add a, another yeah. layer or if they start to add this technology to, to their work, what would they be expecting to see in somebody who, maybe has an underlying you know, background in yeah. trauma, anxiety or depression.
1: Yeah, well, let's, let's say trauma or some, uh, we're doing work with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which mm-hmm. is hypermobility syndrome. And we found some really, did this research uh, with a gastroenterologist and now we're using the SSP as an intervention to reduce gastric pain. We're going to see how that goes, but the interesting part autonomically was that their vagal efficiency uh, was, so, was low enough to discriminate at a high, high degree of accuracy that group of individuals with Ehlers-Danlos from other age-matched adolescents with gut pain. So the Ehlers-Danlos had low vagal efficiency. The other kids who didn't have Ehlers-Danlos, but had gut pains had normal vagal efficiency, but they had lower vagal tone than age match controls. So you had this hierarchy, normals, uh, kids who without Ehlers-Danlos with gut pains and then Ehlers-Danlos, their uh, RSA was the lowest, but they had the lowest, they had atypical vagal efficiency. And what that taught me was that I think that the vagal efficiency is a circuit for dysautonomia, another word that you've, you have heard thrown around, which is really saying dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. But let's go back to how we start the interview mm-hmm. it's a measure of disruption of homeostasis. That's mm-hmm. dysautonomia. And I think this is a simple, efficient measurement of it. We've also done research with preterm babies showing it developing and how it changes with maturation and how it changes between sleep states. So we're actually trying to show that there's a certain trajectory that you anticipate that's associated with being healthier. And uh, the other study that will be coming out shortly is that we looked at uh, college students who have maltreatment histories, not PTSD but maltreatment histories, not threshold level of PTSD. And they had significantly lowered vagal efficiency. Mm-hmm. So it's like saying this is the antecedent for the comorbidities of all the gut problems and cardiovascular problems of this large, uh, it's a significant part of our population that carries all these trauma histories. And they, in a sense, do okay for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you start getting it manifested in all the organs. And I think this is, this is really the snapshot that will be the lead indicator.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so going, going back to where we wanna go with this is that when we have these measures easily available to providers, they will be able to have a different dialogue with their clients. And if you can look at these measures over time, including the the subjective tests which are going to be on the dashboard, the assessments of sensory scales, the body perception questionnaires. You as a therapist, as a provider can have this very, uh, you know, uh, I would say uh, it's a sharing moment of where you're learning about the body. It's not being evaluated. We're not saying something's broken and the journey will start showing that things are in a sense, moving towards a more normalization or more normal, and that I think this becomes a wonderful story uh, to be shared with with clients because wow. they come into your your space wanting to be fixed but not knowing what's wrong,
0: uh-huh.
1: and and I think this has been the. The inappropriate history of treatment models, that is that we want to fix people, both by the practitioner and also the person seeing the practitioner. I think if we shifted the metaphor to say, I'm coming to see you, Joanne, because I want to learn more about who I am, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you're going to to help me understand uh, what I am, and then I will learn to navigate in this complex world, as opposed to being told it's not really important how I feel.
0: Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. I like how you said that. And thank you for talking about um, Anastalus because we actually did, I put out on our, our group for, to let people know that I was having a conversation with you and if some people wanted to put in um, forward some questions, and we actually did have one um, regarding that diagnosis. So, um, and I think this heads beautifully into um, addressing maybe some of these questions that were that were um, sent in. I think this one, this first one, is is interesting because of the the impact of the the state of the world right now. But could Dr. Porges weigh in on HRV and long COVID? I'm one year into long COVID and now have post COVID dysautonomia. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, Postural, this yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm part of a Wednesday night think tank group that's been going on for about almost a year now. That's one of the common. Uh, it's actually the group is quite polyvagal informed, and the issue is uh, long COVID is the body's been retuned to be in a state of threat. And we, the the other part. So we did a COVID study looking at my body perception questionnaire and childhood trauma questionnaires and looked at mental health symptoms uh, during the pandemic, not disease vulnerability or disease recovery. And what's interesting is that, of course, you're going to say trauma history or adversity history uh, results in more adverse mental health issues. But that's true, but virtually all the variants, all the predictive variants of childhood or a previous adversity history, most of the variants, virtually all of it, is accounted for by a retuned autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system has retuned, and that's really what you're seeing uh, in a sense of the long haul. What I wanted to really say here is that one of the pre existing conditions, which is really been discussed when we talk about COVID reactivity, a pre existing condition. Is trauma, and that's not really what's been discussed. It's been obesity, racial uh, uh, diversity, certain you know racial, thing. but it's all comes back to trauma or chronic threat. If the body's under chronic threat, the reaction to the virus is not as good. But if the bodies in the state retuned to be under chronic threat, even if you don't get COVID, your reaction to the pandemic is worse. So going back to what your uh, the, the question is that the body, we have to always think of the body in it's being a reaction of threat responses. And the long haul is a body that has been retuned to be in a state of threat. And part of it this is, is seen and a lot of it's now being discussed in terms of inflammatory reactions mm-hmm. and infl- inflammation is a defense reaction. So we have to is conceptualize a body that's in a state of safety and calmness versus a body that's in a state of threat. Mm-hmm.
0: I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> the next question talks about um, what are the differences that you would see in HRV or vagal tone from children to adults? That's
1: kind of... Um, Well, there's... Okay, adults are not one thing either. So you have kind of a developmental phenomenon where it does get higher. But there's an interesting history here. And that is it's embedded in the pediatric literature that uh, used to be called pediatric arrhythmia because it meaning, and that was very much sinus arrhythmia. It was because kids had higher levels, but that's not totally true. There is, I did a, a, a 20 to 80 year old longitudinal, not long, longitudinal, cross-sectional, cross-sectional study uh, with the Baltimore longitudinal study in the 1990s. And there is a regression line of decreased RSA with aging. It's not as high as you'd think. Uh, so the point is that there's a whole bunch of other variables: fitness, uh, lifestyle. So uh, it develops, and then you know we we have two aspects of the uh, uh, curve: it gets higher and then it goes down. And during the early parts of life, during the first year, when the vagal pathways are still myelinated, the myelination uh, of the Vegas is actually parallel in that increased RSA. So you mm-hmm. see this as functional outputs in terms of RSA.
0: Mm-hmm. And when, what I, kind I, of, it, when does that peak? What kind of age range does that peak?
1: <laughs> oh, I, I mean, I, the curves, well, you're going to see, uh, it's more than just peaking. So when you're dealing like with people under the age of 30, our college students, um, they can be uh, do virtually nothing and look like they have really robust RSA. Uh, you can compare them to uh, you know, uh, 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 cross-country runners, and they're, they're going to overlap sedentary and these really athletes, but as you start getting older, the sedentary people are gonna be separated and our bodies need to be challenged. These become normal exercises. And if we wanna think about this concept of retuned autonomic nervous system and the lifestyles that we're living, we have to ask the question, how much of our life is under states of threat? And I will retranslate that. How much of your lifetime is spent being evaluated? Mm-hmm. and evaluation is a metaphor for a nervous system to go into states of threat and just ask any elementary school child they know that they're telling you that when their guts are in pain they don't want to go to school uh, and you know, I, I always like to say I've been a faculty member for so many decades and it's not the warm and cuddly environment it's just that's not what it is it has its good attributes, but it doesn't have its co-regulatory attributes. Mm-hmm. And you have to know where you are. And it says many people's workplaces are toxic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I did want- to,
0: is a self-critical and self-evaluative as well. So, so add well, that, that, that on top that, gets, <laughs> that
1: gets internalized, you see. Yeah. And then we start putting on top of that religious overtones mm-hmm. of how we see ourselves as being good or, or bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there are a lot missing. I always, the metaphor I use is that at our core, we're a wonderful species. It's the wrapping that gets confused. Uh, I'd like to bring up that we are doing work uh, uh, with Linda Thompson, who you do know. Mm-hmm. And you know, her husband, Michael, uh, died recently. And uh, mm-hmm. we have a collaboration with them, which is now starting to get data flow uh, in which we were using the SSP prior to neural feedback with the agenda to see whether it could reduce the duration necessary for successful outcomes with neural feedback and that was based on the metaphor or at least the premise and hypothesis that a calm nervous system is going to be more accessible for neural feedback. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I need to connect you with the reconnect you because i know you already had that connection with the starts organization in sydney their neurofeedback oh, yeah. team have oh, been yeah. using the ssp prior to in a trauma in a yeah. very yeah. traumatic trauma field it, yeah, and getting do, really nice yeah. results
1: wonderful No, you know i get emails from every once in a while i haven't oh. seen them it has to be well over 10 years lovely people yeah send my best please
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, they're a, they're a wonderful group. I'm glad that we have that connection with them. Um, I would just ask this one or two last questions. They're very safe and sound protocol orientated. Um. One is um, the impact of sleep meds and muscle relaxers on safe and sound protocol. What's your...
1: Okay. I know so, we kind of,
0: if you listen okay. to everything we've talked about, it kind of answers the question anyway but. well
1: the, but one can it can be a nuanced answer and the answer is well with most sleep medicines there's going to be some type of anticholinergic in it it's going it could even be an antihistamine and antihistamines have some anticholinergic effects and that means it's going to interfere with the neural regulation of the autonomic nervous system but virtually all medication like psychotropic medications are going to influence autonomic function. So we, again, this is our culture. We believe that pharmaceuticals are very targeted. Well, in reality, they're very general. They affect the whole body. And it doesn't mean they're bad. It means that they have some effects that we don't welcome, and if you read the counterindications on most medications, those counterindications are autonomic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, true. The, the bottom line is, I I think it potentially can interfere with it, uh, or maybe interfere is the wrong word. Dampen its effectiveness might be a better way.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I'm aware of our time. And I wanted to maybe finish with, if you had any advice for practitioners thinking about learning more about HRV or adding Mm -hmm. um, a tool to help supplement the Safe and Sound Protocol. Um,
1: I think it's, I would say it's a next step. Mm -hmm. I think it's an important direction because it ties the SSP, which was a polyvagal informed strategy it now ties it in, creates a circle of saying, if and when this works, you should have outputs in this system. So it shifts object it shifts outcomes to objective measurements that have no bias or let's say expectancy related to them. So you, and I but I think the most important part is that it's going to give practitioners another tool on that shared journey with their clients. And I really think the critical part is this, learn about my body, learn how my body gets disrupted as opposed to, I can do anything. Uh, you can't do a- everything with your body. Your body, as my good friend Bessel, is, keeps the score. <laughs> your body knows, and it keeps it in, in people like Bessel as well. So the, the issue is that know we think we can get away with things and again i would say as an academic i thought for decades i could kind of get away with it without listening to what my body was saying but you, you end up paying a price um and so we have to in our culture have more opportunities to learn about our body and what i'm really saying is we learned about what our body is doing. Our body has surveillance systems built into it. And this is the whole dialogue about the vagus and the polyvagal theory. It's understanding that the feedback from visceral organs affect our brain and our brain affects our visceral organs. But who's telling you this story? Where are you hearing it? Are you, are your physicians hearing the story? They're not learning it in medical school. And so they become, in a sense, not a good, uh, source of knowledge about how mental health issues get reflected in the body and how body damage can be reflected in mental health function. And we have, again, another subset of people who have medical traumas. And so I'm really interested in SSP being used as a preoperative prep, Mm -hmm. getting people prepared and accessible to surgery. You have to be accessible to interventions and I think some of the interventions can be painful and in a sense on one level unwelcome but I think with something like experience with the SSP you can become more accessible to it.
0: Mm -hmm. And it makes total sense if you're nudging the homeostasis status essentially which is rest and rejuvenation and optimal visceral function well then you would expect on the other end after a surgery that the recovery would be, would be optimized. Um, yeah. You would, yeah. You would expect, hmm I know getting back to the connection that I think um, using tools either like IOM2 or HeartMath provide in terms of helping people develop that internal awareness. I know when, um, a, a way that I'll use it is just helping people connect what they're thinking with their their physiological feedback. So you yeah. using the grapher, for instance, when you get like a if people's thinking their baseline is slightly jagged and then they think mm. about a stressful event and they can see their, mm. their feedback look even more jagged. Then it mm. I found it really powerful for clients to sort of say, oh wow, what I think, my go-to mm. ruminating mm. thoughts, have a direct impact on my, on my visceral system. And then when they, um, then we, so for, to build that sort of self-awareness.
1: I and I think part of what we need to do is build positive narratives. Mm.
0: The positive
1: narrative uh, takes us out of the threat stage, takes us out of a blame stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like honor yourself, honor your body. And, you know, a sense of self-gratitude and self-compassion. Again, this tends to be missing in much of our lifestyles. But if we feel safe within ourselves, we Mm -hmm. can be safe with other people as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Excellent. So on that note, I just want to say thank you again for your time. This sharing is such wonderful knowledge that I know people will really be very grateful for. Thank Thank you. you,
1: Joanne. Good to see you again. Hope to see you here sometime soon.
0: Yes, yes. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. You may have picked up that I have a particular interest in the clinical applications of heart rate variability. I have provided short introductions to heart rate variability in some of the workshops that I have run. I think that it is a very important area for therapists to know about. As such, I'm offering two short courses. The first is polyvagal-based heart rate variability an introductory course and the second is ssp and heart rate variability biofeedback i'll have information noted in the podcast show notes about how to register and a brief summary of each course and i'll also post this information on the safe and sound protocol podcast facebook group as always please leave any feedback any thoughts, any suggestions in the Facebook group um, discussion. And otherwise, everyone take care, breathe and smile, Joanne. If you'd like to learn more about the Safe and Sound Protocol in Australia and New Zealand, please contact Integrated Listening Australia. The website is integratedlistening.com.au. And for the rest of the world, please contact Unite Integrated Listening at integratedlistening.com.